0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quote about Hilda Doolittle, the modernist poet who's also known as HD. Quote HD read and wrote about an impressively wide range of topics gender and sexuality, nature and the environment, religion and mysticism, psychoanalysis, ancient civilizations, the history of war and imperialism, the lives of artists, silent film, and literature. She read French, German, Italian, Latin, and ancient Greek. She led a fascinating peripatetic life. At least half a dozen nations she called home. England, the United States, Germany, Greece, Switzerland, Italy. She went to Greece with the sexologist Havelock Ellis. She was in Egypt when King Tut's tomb was opened. She lived in London through two world wars. Man Ray photographed her twice. Her famed beauty was typically described as strange. She was quasi-engaged to Ezra Pound and ended a short-lived friendship with D.H. Lawrence over his sexist views. She was an analysand and patient of Sigmund Freud. Her work ethic could only be described as Puritan. She was loyal at times to a fault. She starred in avant-garde films. She was an amateur astrologer with an expansive, syncretic, ever-evolving, hermetic notion of spirituality. She was extraordinarily well-read, her library vast, but in stressful times, she binged on lesbian romances and police procedurals. For a time she raised pet monkeys. End quote. What a woman, and yet Google today is not kind to the initials H and D when searching for poetry. One scrolls in vain past links to Home Depot and Harley Davidson and Huntington's disease and high definition. H.D., the poet, feels lost to the sands of time, a recurring phenomenon when it comes to H.D., it seems. The same thing happened to her shortly after her death. But back then, her reputation was resurrected by scholars, and now her life and works are being re-resurrected by a scholar and biographer named Lara Vedder. We'll talk to Lara Vedder about H.D. today on The History of Literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Carl Rolison about Sylvia Plath last time. His book, Sylvia Plath Day by Day, would be a good one for your holiday wish list. Hint, hint. As would the book we have under our microscope today. We'll give you a sneak preview of it. And actually, I already did. The quote I read at the beginning was a sneak preview of it because that came from the book it came from the pen of Lara Vetter, who will be joining us shortly. But first, let's hear from a listener. This one has been sitting in the inbox for a long time. Let's dust it off and see what it says. Subject, a massive thank you. Dear Jack, I hope this email finds you and your loved ones doing well. I am a massive fan of the podcast and have been for some time. I listen to your episodes regularly, and I especially love re-listening to them. In particular, I love the episodes where you have guests on, while your solo episodes flow like creative works of art in their own right. Okay, that's, <laughs> let's, not, let's not get too carried away. There is something about the dialogue between two people discussing books that I love. There was a time in my life when my dad and I would discuss books Unfortunately, he passed away in 2018, and since then, I think my desire to discuss great books with another person has been somewhat unmet, though I certainly have one friend who is an avid reader. Listening to your podcast, along with several others that I find enjoyable, has helped fill that void. When I am walking around my house doing the various chores, I listen to your podcast and it makes me feel a bit less alone in my love of reading. Of all your guests, I am particularly fond of Mike Palindrome, as it feels, at least to me as a listener, like your friendship and your bond over literature has remained strong despite the many turns of life. I've gotten so many hours of enjoyment listening to your drafts and discussions. I'm especially fond of the following episodes. And then he names a bunch. I think I'm going to go ahead and, and read this list because a lot of you might be looking for episodes with Mike Palindrome and I don't always label them because it doesn't feel like he's a guest. It feels like he's just another co-host or an extension of myself. It's like a, not a, I don't know, maybe when a neighbor drops by instead of a friend who's coming from out of town or something. So, Episodes he mentions are Power Ranking, the Nobel Prize for Literature. (laughs) Yes, we did that. Literary Duos, Parts One and Two. Literary Battle Royale, Two, The Cold War. That was where we looked at America versus Russia in terms of literature. The Seven Deadly Sins, where we drafted those. Saul Bellow, One Hit Wonders. Yeah, our. With the 80s music. If you're a fan of 80s music, that's the episode for you. To sleep, perchance, to dream. I don't even remember that one. What was that? Shakespeare drafting great Shakespeare lines, maybe? Or something about sleeping in literature? <laughs> uh, recommend this. That was a good one. The Greatest Books Ever, Part Two, and The Books of Our Lives, Best Debut Novels, and Alfred Hitchcock. Boy, we have. Really done a lot with Mike over the years. Okay, we've got a couple more coming up too. D.H. Lawrence stories with him. Okay, back to the email. Over the years, you two have introduced me to several great books. For instance, I just finished Elena Ferrante's Marvelous Neapolitan novels. Those books are an absolute modern masterpiece. Ferrante's ability to capture the many facets of life through the relationship, equal parts loving and combative, between Elena and Lila is wholly unique. Reading her books was one of the singular reading experiences of my life. There are certain moments that one as a reader never forgets, and reading the Neapolitan books certainly qualifies for me. Reading them reminded me of other special moments in my reading life, like reading Blood Meridian, Gravity's Rainbow, Crime and Punishment, Beloved, As I Lay Dying, and Jesus' Son for the first time. Had I not heard Mike mention Elena and Lila on the Literary Duos episode, I might have missed out on something truly special to me. I hope you realize just how much your podcast means to many of us. I was re-listening to the episode 400 anniversary special and was a bit taken aback when I heard you say you thought about ending it at episode 400. Then you said maybe you would go to 500. I am sure I heard that the first time, but 500 felt so far in the future that I didn't give it a ton of thought. Now that we are so close, like I said, this was way back when, this email. Now that we are so close, I hope you have reconsidered. I know you gave yourself a goal to do two a week for the year, so I'm guessing you have changed your mind. Of course, when the time comes, I want you to do what is best for you. But I hope that the decision to end the podcast is far in the future, and we have many more amazing episodes, including some Mike Palindrome specials on the way. Also, for years now, I have hoped for an episode on Cormac McCarthy. (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) You and many, many other listeners. (laughs) Back to the email. I would still love to have one, but given that we are almost 500 episodes in and it hasn't happened, my educated guess is that you likely don't hold him in the same esteem I do. For all his flaws, and there are several, I think he's the greatest living American writer. Blood Meridian seems to me a first-class work in terms of the beauty of the language and the visionary power. Happy reading and take care, Troy. Okay, Troy, thank you for that very kind and generous email and happy reading to you as well. You are a champion reader and I'm sorry that your father is no longer with us to discuss books with you. I'm glad that my guests and I have been able to help fill that void in a small way at least. You are definitely not alone Lots of listeners email me with similar feelings. The literary world is out there. We're just a little hard to find sometimes. We don't always walk around with billboards over our heads saying Jane Austen fan below. And reading is is kind of a private activity by its nature. If it wasn't, actually, I probably wouldn't like it nearly as much. But in any case, Thank you for sharing your experience with me. And yes, we rolled right past episode 500, didn't we? And 600 is now within our sights. I'm thinking very hard about the future of the podcast, though. And I might scale things back a bit in the new year. Maybe just one episode a week on a regular basis. Or maybe 1.5 episode. Not, you know what I mean, right? Not, I'm not saying I'd release a half an episode. I mean, I'd do one one episode every Monday, and maybe one every other Thursday, averaging out to 1.5 episodes, something like that. Although, now that I say that, let me think here for a minute. I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of putting out 0.5 episodes every single Thursday. How about half an episode? How about if we do half an episode that goes out to some listeners and half an episode that goes to other listeners, and then you would have to pair up, partner up, to hear the whole thing. Maybe that's the kind of community building that we should be doing. Although, building a community of annoyed people who only got half an episode and wanted a whole one, it's probably not the best idea I've ever had. Not the worst, either. My My patent application for Sparkle Fruit is clearing its throat and raising its hand here, but not the best. So thank you, Troy, and best wishes to you and your books. And yes, Cormac McCarthy is going to get an episode, but it's up there with Flannery O'Connor's, the part two episode we've been promising for years and years and so many other episodes on our list. Mm, The list is too long. It's not that we don't want to do these episodes, it's that we, even even doing 560-some episodes, there's still, there's a lot of authors out there. <laughs> there are a lot of writers who've written a lot of books. Scribble, 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 A Mr. Gibbon? Okay, Hilda Doolittle was born in 1886 in Pennsylvania. Her parents were wealthy and educated and sent her to Bryn Mawr College, where she explored her interests in classical literature and poetry. She was also exploring her own life. She had her first same-sex relationship in those years, and she met Ezra Pound, a friend who encouraged her poetry, and she nearly got married to him at one point, and then she instead got married to another imagist poet, Richard Aldington, although the two of them were separated after a few years. She continued to write in a wide range of styles and genres as she lived through two world wars and had several personal setbacks and tragedies. She was keenly aware of her image, both her physical appearance and her poetic reputation, and she cultivated the figure of herself almost as carefully as she crafted her poetry and prose. Her unflinching devotion, her tireless devotion to her work, Has been a continual inspiration to successors and scholars. So that's the broad strokes. Let's flesh things out. Lara Vetter, scholar and biographer of HD, after this. Okay, joining me now is Lara Vetter, professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's here today to discuss her book, H.D., or Hilda Doolittle, part of the Critical Live series published by Reaction Books. Lara Vedder, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here.
0: So I went through an Ezra Pound phase in college, and that gave me kind of a, <laughs> an introduction to the poetry of H.D., but I... I, it sounds like that was, at least in part, because some scholars in the 70s and 80s had helped to rediscover her. It sounds like she's somebody who comes in and out of fashion.
1: Oh, I think that's that's probably accurate, yeah. In her day, she was very well-known.
0: Yeah, Um yeah.
1: And then kind of got written out of history and then came back.
0: Came back, and then if, yeah. if it faded again, we're bringing her back now. So who was... Hilda Doolittle, and how did she become H.D.?
1: Well, Hilda Doolittle was a little girl who grew up in in, uh, the late 19th century um, in a very kind of tight-knit Moravian religious community Mm. who grew up to want to be a writer, um, who had difficulty figuring out how to do that within this religious community, and eventually left and did become a well-known poet published under the initials HD.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this was in Pennsylvania that she grew up, right?
1: She did. She grew up in, in um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was the first Moravian settlement in the U.S. And her mother was descended from the original settlers, Moravian settlers, in colonial Pennsylvania.
0: And was she connected to any writers or artists when she was young, or did she kind of come up with this as a path all on her own?
1: You know, it's it's kind of hard to say. Now, when, I think she had sort of already decided she was interested in literature and interested in writing. But she met Ezra Pound when she was only 15. Mm. Her brother was at University of Pennsylvania. Um, he brought him home one day. <laughs> she saw him in a play on campus. She also met William Carlos Williams that way who who became a very important American modernist poet yeah. um, later on she because they moved from from Bethlehem to Philadelphia or just outside of Philadelphia she ended up going to these prep schools for girls in Philadelphia that fed into Bryn Mawr, and she went to Bryn Mawr briefly and met Marianne Moore that way, who is, of course, yet another important American modernist. So she was, I guess, fortunate, and they were fortunate to meet her too, Yeah, to know, you know, there was a really nice kind of group of budding, innovative, experimental modernist writers right there in Philadelphia, of all places.
0: Yeah. So... Did she grow up in, in privilege? And was was her family wealthy? Or I, I was struck by how much she was able to do later in life, all the traveling she did and everything. And of course, writers always have to figure out how to make ends meet and so on. What did she yeah do for money? Or, or did her family play a role there?
1: Oh, that's a good question. She had a very large family. She had three brothers, two half-brothers. I wouldn't say she was wealthy, but her father was a an important professor of astronomy and mm so the, i would say definitely middle class maybe even pushing into upper middle class modest but not they weren't poverty stricken um they mm-hmm. they lived well as a very large family on one salary <laughs> um would live later on she becomes brier's lifelong partner this is winifred ellerman and winifred ellerman's father was the richest man in england for a long time
2: mm.
1: um and so when she becomes brier's partner in her 20s after world war 1 is over She does enjoy a little bit more freedom, right, to not have to be concerned about money. Uh, She was always very frugal. She was not someone who needed a lot of money. And up until that point, I think her father sent a small amount of money each year to her when she was in Europe. She was married to richard Aldington in, in nineteen thirteen he didn't have a lot of money at all. His father had lost their fortune, had to leave college, and he was working as a writer. so they were living on very little money and seemed fine with that i mean it, one of the things that really I find interesting about that period around World War One is that, you know the, all of these writers and artists and musicians in and, and London knew one another, and they all had you know they all had their flat somewhere or their little House they were renting out in the country, and they would just swap houses constantly. You mm, know? So right. she was a lot of travel was was just sort of going from hopping from one place to another, and lending out your flat in the meantime to whoever. And so that, there was just a, a lot of kind of movement that didn't require a whole lot of money. You know, at the, right. but then of course when she meets Briar and they become a couple, they begin to live together. At that point, they're raising HD's daughter. Briar did not inherit. Much of her father's grand fortune that went to her brother, but she had enough that they could live very comfortably. And like HD, she was pretty frugal, but they still had the ability to pretty much travel wherever they wanted to. And and Briar took full advantage and she traveled all over the world. She really enjoyed that.
0: Right. Okay. So when did Hilda Doolittle start writing poetry and, and did she take the initials HD right away?
1: probably started writing poetry before she took the initials. As far as we know, probably her first poems would have been translations from ancient Greek poetry Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that she would have done in high school. Mm. Um, And she was certainly already thinking, I think, at that point about being a poet. Um, She gave a talk on graduation day about the poet. You know, this was something that I think she was already striving for, but she could see really no way to turn this into a career. I mean, it's very early days in the 20th century. She's a woman from a a very kind of small insular community. It's, Difficult for her to imagine how this is going to happen, but she really wants it to happen. Her first real poems, I think, were probably written while she was in her 20s to Frances Gregg. We think of Ezra Pound as her first love, but she had another first love. And that was Frances Gregg, who was a, a young woman who was at the Philadelphia Academy of Art studying to be a painter. And they, the two of them read poetry together and wrote poetry together. And she wrote poems to her that were sort of based on Theocritus's homoerotic poems from ancient Greece. It's a few years later when H.D. finally makes it over the pond that she she begins writing for publication. And it's at that point that she becomes H.D. There's this kind of apocryphal story about how she and Richard Aldington and Pound, who had been meeting and talking about imagism for quite a long time at that point, are sitting and reading some of HD's latest poems, and he says, oh, these are the poems that are going to launch Imagism, this is exactly what we've been talking about, and that he gives her that name. But if you go into the archives, you can see that she's already using the initials HD when she signs letters. She never liked her name. She hmm. thought Hilda was a really antiquated, kind of old-fashioned name. Yeah. Um, she thought Doolittle sounded like, well, like you don't do very much, but <laughs> also so it was just belittling kind of name. And so she really hated it. And she'd already started taking to being just Hilda or HD when she'd sign letters. I think what happened that day in the tea room is that Pound added the rather kind of lofty, imagiste to her signature yeah. <laughs> because he was going to use that to, to start this movement. Right. But she continued to use HD. She she continued to publish under that for her whole career, even in times when she wanted to use a pseudonym because she thought, oh, I want to try this different kind of writing. I don't want it to be associated with HD. She never won those battles <laughs> because publishers would say but they need to know it's you because you're a known person, right? So people will buy it <laughs> if, if they know that you wrote it. So right. it, it, it stuck. Yeah, it stuck. And I think early on, she really appreciated that the anonymity of it, that when reviewers and readers encountered her work for the first time, they didn't know her gender. They didn't know anything. They couldn't discern anything about her because all Mm. they had was initials. And so early reviewers always referred to her with a masculine pronoun. And I think she liked that. It meant that people could come to her poetry without preconceived notions about what a, a poetess would write, you know, right. about family, about love, about marriage, about romance, those kinds of things, domesticity.
0: Right. And it is true that the I mean, the name Hilda Doolittle really does kind of bring to mind, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of someone, you know, an old uh Woman out of a Agatha Christie movie or <laughs> yes. something, you know, with an ear trumpet or something. <laughs> um, exactly. And when you when you see the pictures of Hilda Doolittle HD, she's so striking. She's got such mm-hmm. um, you know pronounced cheekbones, and and she looks very fierce and and severe, and uh, mm-hmm. you know beautiful in a kind of uh, young and and modern way. It it does not seem like you it can fits. you could imagine that. Yeah, she would feel like she had. Yeah had been uh, unfortunately named. So she does seem to be someone who was interested in her image and, and in cultivating her image. Was she someone who wanted to be famous by any means necessary and poetry was mm-hmm. kind of the avenue she took? Or or was she just so in love with poetry and writing and, and everything that that she would have written poetry and made that her life's work, even if there were no possibility of fame?
1: Um, that's a complicated question. I, I, so, you know, when she was first starting out and she wasn't well known yet and maybe wasn't even published yet and she, but she'd finally made it across the pond. She let Ezra Pound kind of take charge of her and, and he led her around and introduced her all the right people, all the artists in, in London, all the writers, all the patrons. And she really kind of threw herself into that. But mm-hmm. And in that way, yeah, she was she was seeking I don't know if she's seeking fame, but she was certainly seeking recognition and trying to find a community, right, that would appreciate her work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think that she was tremendously comfortable doing that though. And and as soon as she was financially able not to worry about going out to try to find patrons and being in salon culture and all that, she just withdrew from it. I, I you know, I think for her um, she was a very ambitious writer. She wanted to be a great poet. She wanted to be appreciated for her poetry. But I don't think she wanted fame. You know, I was I was reading yesterday, and as a matter of fact, about the new biography about Edna St. Vincent Millay and about what a celebrity she was. And mm-hmm. we don't have that that ability anymore to make, you know, a celebrity <laughs> out, of a, out of a young poet. And, and she did seem someone who I think didn't just want to be a great poet, but wanted to be famous. And that was really, a lot of her fame did kind of, of, and her and the notoriety of her poetry really did have to do with her personality. I think that would have just horrified h d as a as a way to try to make it as a poet. I don't think she wanted fame, and in fact, I think she ended up trying to really guard her private life, Mm. right, from others. And this is not that unusual with queer writers. You think about it historically, living in other time periods where it was not like today, where it might have been more welcomed. I mean, she really did want her private life to remain private. And so that kind of scrutiny would, I think, have just that, that, that Malay invited and enjoyed, I, I think that would have just horrified her. She, she didn't want biographies written about her. She didn't want dissertations written about her. She didn't like to do interviews. It was really late in life before she, she did a couple of interviews. I think she had loosened up a little bit. You know, the times had changed, too.
2: Right. You know,
1: the, the mores had changed. But she spent a lot of time, really, I think she and Breyer just trying to guard their privacy. And and also Breyer's parents would not have been supportive of that. Her parents would not have been supportive of that. I just think there was a whole lot in her life that pushed her toward being less visible,
2: mm-hmm. I think,
1: and wanted the work to stand on its own.
0: So right. serious
1: writer, ambitious writer, but not necessarily because she wanted some kind of public notoriety.
0: Yeah. And yet, as you say in the introduction, what is extraordinary about her is that at the same time that she was safeguarding her private life, she was deconstructing the divide. And and you say, uh, quote, work for HD was the material and aesthetic embodiment of experience of a life lived. Her life, her body was a canvas. Work did not reflect life. Rather, she wrote her life into existence. Uh, mm-hmm. So does that mean that she basically, all of these things that she couldn't be open and public about or that she wanted to keep private and, and keep reserved, she was willing to put into her poetry?
1: Poetry and, and I think more so her prose.
0: Oh, right, um, right. And she
1: was, yeah, because that, there was, I mean, almost not all of it, but there's a lot of it that's autobiographical fiction and some of it pretty thinly veiled. She didn't try to publish all of it, but she kept it. I think she had this sense that and she was right that one day people would read it mm-hmm. and that would be, you know, a different time, a different era or or she would be gone. It wouldn't affect her or her family negatively. But it it is an interesting paradox that someone who was so guarded about her personal life, who flew into a rage when a picture appeared next to a poem in a publication, and she really just wanted the poem to stand on its own, you know, that someone like that could also just write so openly about herself. I mean, the names are changed. If she didn't publish under HD, who would know it was her? And certainly a lot of modernist may have gravitated towards some of the more experimental techniques in order to shield a little bit from sensors what might actually be happening in the scene or what we might actually be talking about so you know she does play around with stream of consciousness and and she's careful there's not like a graphic sex scene in any of her novels but if you read something like paint it today which was her first sort of foray into prose as an adult. She wrote short stories for money when she was younger. But if you read something like that, like, that's not a book that she would have published then. Mm. Right. I think it was just too, it was too clear that it was a book about Francis Gregg and Breyer. And if you didn't know who they were, it was still very clear. It was a book about women in love with one another,
0: right? Mm. Right. So it wasn't necessarily that she was trying to create an identity for herself or, or carve out a make a, a, a public image or, or a kind of fashion herself as a certain kind of celebrity to make her way through the world that way. But it was it almost seems like she was trying to either figure it out for herself or express it in some way, whether mm-hmm. or not it would ever make it into print.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think for her, inspiration for writing had always come from life and, mm-hmm. and come from her life and come from... And she you know, has this sort of debate with Pound. She believes that love is at the center of great art. And he says, love can never be at the center of great art, right? She needs to go out into the world and experience the world in all kinds of different ways and lived a really kind of very interesting life in that way, right? So she can express that in her writing, but that doesn't necessarily entail being a famous person. Now, obviously, people in artistic circles, the well-read public did know who she was at some mm. point. You know, the cat's out of the bag. She's not this this mysterious man named HD. But th- then she's careful about what, what photographs get.
2: Circulated, mm-hmm. right?
1: She wants to. She doesn't want to look like a, a 19th century poetess. And as you mentioned earlier on in this <laughs> in this conversation, she did not look like a 19th century poetess. Um, She wanted to look serious and very dedicated to her craft and and glamorous, but not in a Hollywood kind of way.
2: Mm, You know, it's not that she was
1: immune to, um, you know, Man Ray takes some beautiful pictures of her, but she needs to look serious. And then, you know, she needs to look like, like a serious person, a person to be taken seriously, a person whose work should be taken seriously. She doesn't smile for the camera. She doesn't even look at the camera in most pictures. Right.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more about HD and we'll start at the beginning of her poetic career. Okay, we're back with Lara Vetter. Lara, maybe we should start with Imagism and and this moment mm-hmm. where she and Pound and Aldington are are working out what they want poetry to be. And and as you mentioned earlier, she kind of exemplifies it for them. What was Imagism exactly, and how did she fit into it?
1: Yeah. So Pound was already in London for a while before she made it over there, and she, and she got to go because she convinced her parents if she went with her friend Francis Gregg and Francis's mother to chaperone, it would just be a visit. But of course, she never leaves. She never comes mm-hmm. back to the states. He's already there, and he's and he's already working with Yeats. He's working with other writers and philosophers. He's already kind of thinking about ways to respond. I think. To Victorian poetry, like what could this new poetry be like? And he's already writing poetry himself and doing translation himself. And she, of course, had been working with him. They read together, they wrote together while they were still in, in the U.S. But here she comes and they make the acquaintance of Richard Aldington and the three of them start working really in earnest on what would this poetry be? And they call it imagism because they want it focused on an image, an object, an actual material thing. A lot of Victorian poetry is, is really lush, it's laden with sentiment, it's very emotional, it's, it's very abstract, it can be very moral. Um, and so they, they were basically just imagining what would the opposite of that be you know, there's, mm. Victorian poetry was also pretty formulaic, there's always a regular rhythm, a regular rhyme scheme forms were very fixed and so they imagine a poetry that is focused, it's not about a sentiment, an emotion, an abstraction it's not an object, it's just about an everyday thing and, or an image that you see that, that captures your attention, Pound's poem in a station in the metro is a mm. good example of that mm-hmm. Like it, here's just a flash if you took a photograph. Right. Here's this moment like that's still in time. And so that's one of the things that was important to them. They also wanted to break away from the idea of this regular rhythm, iambic pentameter or what, whatever it is. Usually it's iambic pentameter in English. But instead of trying to always code your poems in this kind of da-da, 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 da
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: Use music or decide your own rhythm that really matches more the content of the poem. Break the line where you want to break the line, not where not where the rhyme happens, right? <laughs> and so really free verse. Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, the poems are much more stripped down. Like Victorian poems can go on and on and on, and they're so lush and so dense. But this is really, stri- you know, don't use any word that doesn't contribute to the poem, especially look out for adjectives. That's another kind of dictum of imagism that they decide on, no superfluous words. Mm. And so these were the ideas that they were talking about. They were all writing. Alding and Pound had already started publishing some poems that were, were free verse or sort of moving in that direction. Direction, they were still a little bit more sentimental than the poems that H.D. ends up creating. And when he reads these three poems, the most famous of which is Hermes of the Ways, Pound says, okay, this is it. This is how we're going to launch imagism. What's interesting about it is if, if you look at, the, you know, what Pound says imagism is, and then you look at her early free verse poetry, the poetry that's in Seagarden, her first volume, they are and they're not imagist. One of the things that is kind of different about her poems is there's always so much motion um there's so much sort of energy in her poems they're not like a still shot of life mm. you know that you freeze in a in a camera lens and i think that's why you know pound gets frustrated because he loses control of imagism to Amy Lowell and he, so he wants to create vorticism, which is basically if you took imagism and then you inject some motion, energy, and a lot of kind of white nationalist and masculinist rhetoric, you know, you've got vorticism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, and when he does that, he uses her poem, Oread, as an exemplar of that new movement, even though she refused to sign the Vortices Manifesto. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of interesting the ways in which she does and doesn't fit this dogma that that he ends up kind of <laughs> disseminating. You know, he has his, here are the dos and don'ts of imagism, or here's a statement about what imagism is. You know, he he's the one who's sort of in charge of writing the manifestos. Her work does and doesn't fit it, I think, in interesting ways. That's how she began in January of 1913 with her first three poems in publication under the under the initials HD.
0: Yeah, you can imagine why he needed to do a manifesto because it would be so different from what people would be expecting to read and and especially because mm-hmm. when you when you you know you can imagine uh, I mean I was I was hearing this from students in the 1990s, where they would come into a a, a first year poetry class in college and say, um, "Well, I I don't think it's a poem unless it rhymes." Mm-hmm. Uh, they still say that, <laughs> yeah, right. They still say that today, and so you can imagine why uh, you know someone might look at a, an Imagist poem and say, well, "That's not even poetry. That's I I mm-hmm. don't even believe it is." And so you can see where the benefit of the manifesto would be, but on the other hand, to get away from the self-description of it and and Pound's view of it what was hd what did she find dissatisfying about the poems that were at the forefront at the time and and what did she think her poems should do
1: yeah it's an uh, interesting question i think she agreed that she was not interested in writing poems like victorian verse she was not mm-hmm. interested in the subjects of those of those poems, mm. the kind of conservative ideology that she saw behind them, she is very much interested in. I think rethinking, rewriting, revising some of the some of the. Big kind of symbols of Western poetry. You think, for instance, all right, so her first volume is Sea Garden. There's flowers all over it. Well, that sounds like a very girly thing to do. Right? And my mm-hmm. first book mm-hmm. is going to be about flowers. But her flowers are not the flowers of eras past in English history of um, literature. They're, her poems are not beautiful cultivated roses that stand for true love between a man and a woman. Her poems are sea roses that the sea has tossed about has flung off its leaves, has shorned of its petals. She's, but she finds beauty in that, right? She says that she wants to find beauty in a in a garden, not a sheltered garden, but but a garden that has been out in nature and it, and is has been ravaged by the forces. She's very interested in these small, tiny kinds of flowers and and plants and even people and and Sea Garden, sort of subject to the absolute force of nature. And I think it plays on, you know, she was a tomboy when she was young. She had all these brothers and she trounced through the woods and the forest and swam in the creeks and did all of these kinds of tomboyish sort of things. She loved nature. Her grandfather was a botanist. There were scientists in her family. So it's, she just comes at it from such a different angle and so the you know our associations with flowers which have to do with love and have to do with spring and she's rewriting them so they have very different kinds of associations Hmm. I think that was what she was thinking about with her first volume she also sets them in ancient Greece Um, As many modernists did, you know, they, they wanted to leave behind the contemporary settings that we had all been reading, right, in the 19th century and look back to a kind of mythological past. And she does, she's very much in line with that as well. She continues even after she leaves, but she hasn't really produced images, poems after the first decade or so. I mean she her her writings becoming much longer, she's more interested in translation. She's more interested in in creating poems about these sort of female mythological figures from ancient Greece that we've all forgotten about or never considered the perspectives of, but she's still in ancient Greece until at least until World War II in her poetry. She prose-wise, she's exploring other other
0: worlds. Does it seem like she was satisfied with her poetry?
1: I think so. I think she was quite satisfied with it. She was she was ambitious. She was serious about her craft. Um, she wrote every day.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: don't think she lacked confidence. I think even when she's young, she feels she feels very confident about her talent as a as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think she can get she can have these moments of dissatisfaction um, when and it usually comes when reviewers will say things like ah, well this wasn't very hd i don't know what i don't i don't know why hd would do this you know hd had wrote these perfect little poems i don't know why she's off writing this other kind of work mm-hmm. you know when she's older she started talking about imagism as a really useful stage for a writer to go through that it was it was very instructive to work within those kinds of strict mm-hmm. rules yeah. but she would get a little frustrated i think not with her poetry but with the reception of her poetry by some her epic poems were just very, very different from the Images poems that she had written. And I think, you know, she sort of got trounced for that in
0: <laughs> yeah. reviews.
1: Well, this doesn't sound like HD at all. <laughs> did
0: she feel like she was being kind of pigeonholed and, and not allowed to grow? She did. And Yeah, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she felt very much like she had been pigeonholed. And that every time she she tried to sort of step outside of what everyone thought HD was. I mean, she created this author persona that had a lot of power for her, mm-hmm. but it also kind of trapped her um, mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah.
0: yeah. And it's kind of like once people catch up with imagism and they kind of are reading the manifestos and they're, they might be 20 years behind, which is not that long in terms of literary history, yeah. but it's a long time in terms of. Someone's life, where they say, "Well, that that was me mm-hmm. when I was when I was 22 years old. I I I do different things now. You can't expect yeah. to hold me to all of the do's and don'ts that Pound was putting down back when we were writing poems like this." Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. It's important to point out too. It's such a short amount of time. Like for us, it's it, it's a century, but but not then.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: They they still felt like they had some relationship with this person who's still alive and who wrote these perfect poems and and that that, that bothered her. They were always described as absolutely perfect, crystalline, you know, like mm. and and you know when when Aldington later in his memoirs talks about her as a writer, I mean she was aiming for perfection. She would he said she was absolutely ruthless editor of her own work. She would she would write 100 versions of a poem to make it perfect. So, but then that kind of expectation of her did make her feel a little bit like not people don't understand or they don't appreciate that I'm trying to do something
0: different. Yeah. Right. OK. So after she had Imagism had been kind of run its course, what did she I mean, was that uh, what did she write after that and how did she spend kind of the the remaining years of her life?
1: Yeah. So it, she goes through so many phases in the 20s. Um, so after the war, um, after the birth of her daughter, when she's with Breyer, that's when she starts writing prose. Now, she's still writing poetry at the same time, but she decides she's going to try writing prose. And so she writes um, or drafts a series of novels that are are autobiographical, but sort of fictionalized accounts of the sort of traumatic years between, you know, when she was in this kind of triangle with Pound and, and Francis Gregg all the way into, up until when she met Breyer. And so she's she writes these novels. They're all very, very different, very different in focus very different in style, but they're all about this kind of same period. She also starts writing historical fiction. Now, she she liked to read historical fiction. We have pretty good records of her library, which was expansive. Mm. And she read historical fiction all the time. She was interested in that. And so she started writing historical fiction and started with ancient Greece, ancient Rome, because that was sort of what she was most familiar with. She'd studied the classics and she'd been writing about ancient Greece one way or another for a long time. And then she she moved on from that and wrote a historical novel about Jesus, the time of Jesus, Mm. and imagined that Pontius Pilate's wife saves him from the cr- down, pulls him down from the cross and finds a way to get him out of town <laughs> just to right. save his life. <laughs> she tries to capture the ancient Palestine in that era as well. She's also still writing poetry. Her collected works come out, I think, so early, if you think about it, come out in the 20s as well. Um, it's just an explosion of creativity. Uh, towards the end of the 20s, she meets Kenneth McPherson, um, who she falls in love with, who is a queer artist and writer and is getting into filmmaking. And he really gets her and Breyer into film and into watching film. I mean, she'd always watched film. Breyer had not. Breyer had to be coaxed a bit, but they, they got into it. Watching film, reviewing film, but also making film. He he saw HD and said, oh, you're gonna be a you're gonna be a star. You're gonna be a movie star, not in a Hollywood sense, but like a maybe an avant garde movie movie mm. star. And he puts her in front of the camera, and so they make some movies together. The most famous of which was with Paul Robeson, who was already, I think, pretty well known at that point as an international star, mostly as a singer and she also, in addition to that, learns the other side of the camera. She learns how to film. She does the film editing for some of the films that they're working on. So she really immerses herself in that world for a while. And I think the argument's been made, I think, well, that her writing then changes a little bit. It becomes a little bit more cinematic. She starts playing around more with the style of her work. The 30s she saw as a time that was not as prolific, and it wasn't as prolific as the 20s. The forties, but she's still writing the whole time. But for her, that's writer's block, and it's not up to her her standards of how much she should be producing. But she's sort of experimenting with film, and then experimenting with different kinds of style. She's still doing some translation, so she's working, but it's just maybe not what she what she wanted. By the 40s, by the time World War II starts, she is really inspired, and she has another big explosion of writing, and she writes her first epic poem during that war, living in London during the Blitz, during all the bombing of the years after that, uh, living through the rations, and it was, it was a horrible existence, but it was inspiring to her. Um, so she wrote an autobiographical novel about her childhood. She wrote an account of the Blitz in these sort of prose vignettes, and she wrote this epic after the war. She leaves England forever and lives in Switzerland after that. She goes back to uh, historical fiction, writes three more historical fictions. And then in her last decade and a half, she moves more toward long poem cycles. She writes another epic, Helen in Egypt, and she starts writing more memoir kind of works. And this is in part because she has connected in the 30s with Norman Holmes Pearson, who is a professor at Yale, who is really his career is about establishing the importance of American modernism, because by this point, people thought of modernism as British. And so he was he reached out to H.D., to Pound, to Williams, to other American writers, and was trying to help them build their notoriety. And she was at a point in her life that she was feeling less, I guess, protective mm. about her she was a, she was an elderly woman basically at this point, felt less protective about you know her her private life. She still didn't like to give interviews and wouldn't talk to academics who wanted to write their dissertations on her. But she was she was opening up a little bit, and so she wrote in the 40s and 50s. She wrote the tribute to Freud, which is maybe one of the it's probably the prose work she's best known for. Yeah. And but also in Torment, which is kind of about Ezra Pound, but sort of also about, I think, memory and what happens to your memory as you get older and kind of thinking about him through the lens of not being able to remember. And she writes some other memoirs and she gets bid me to live out in print what she had started drafting in the twenties, but it's it's the version of of World War 1 trauma that involved her friendship with DH Lawrence and Pearson is prodding her you know we really want to establish your reputation now that you're at the end of your life and there are these famous men that you were associated right, with and, right. and she's you know she's complicit with that you know she she understands what the stakes are um she's very interested in autobiographical writing and interested in memory anyway and and she responds now she may not have produced the sort of tributes that he was expecting they weren't but she doesn't write about them wholly positively but she does write about her impressions of and experiences with people like Freud and Pound and, and
0: Lawrence. Hmm. What is she known for today? And and what should she be known for? I mean, she had such an incredible and long life. And and I feel like at different points, she's been kind of reduced to, to different things. How would you characterize how she's viewed by let's say uh academics i don't think we can claim much for the general public but like people who mm-hmm. know something about poetry and the history of poetry or know something about modernism how is she viewed and and what do you think that misses
1: hm okay interesting um I, you know i don't think it's a stretch to say that she's pretty firmly in the modernist canon now i mean mm-hmm. she's being read and studied um, in English and other languages, other countries, France has a formal canon, and she entered it maybe about a decade ago and had a big conference, and I and a whole lot of other HD scholars were there.
2: Mm.
1: I think it's safe to say that she is well known for certainly her images, poems, mm-hmm. and to some extent, her epics, in terms of what scholarship it, it tends to be about, it's it's really the later epic poems. And of course, the poems that speak really to more progressive views of gender and sexuality, That that would be something that she's known for today. Mm-hmm. But her, I guess, what she's known for has changed so much. I mean, one of the things that I was really astonished to learn when I was working on this biography is is how well-known she was, like, even in middle America. Like, we don't, I I don't think this happens anymore, but there were little reading groups in small towns in America in the 30s that were reading HD's poetry,
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) writing articles about her in their little local weekly newspapers. She's not known in that way anymore Mm -hmm. by common readers, I guess you might call them. We don't have small weekly local newspapers anymore, sadly, I don't think. But I think reading groups are focused on Oprah's choices and things like that. They're not really focused on poetry for the most part. So I think she's pretty well accepted in the Academy. Certainly all of the anthologies we use to teach survey courses to undergraduates have her poems in them. That's, I think, how she's seen today.
0: Is there anything that people miss? Is there anything that that they should know more about, or should see her in a different way from how she's usually portrayed, or do you think it's it's pretty accurate how people tend to take in their HD these days?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I I guess yes and no. I, I think. She should be well known for her early poetry, even if it, even if it kind of chafed at her later that she mm-hmm. was pigeonholed. It was, you know, it's Seagarden is a beautiful book. It's an amazing book. I think it deserves the attention it gets. And her epics were really groundbreaking as well. I mean, I can, I mm-hmm. can definitely see that focus. So I, I think in in that sense, yes, I think people are focusing on, I guess, what they should be focusing on. But there is a lot more to her, and and I guess a lot of what I've tried to do in my career is to write more about the prose as well, to write, you know, others have written more about her involvement in film. Um, I think I, I think the picture is just kind of incomplete.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't think people have fully taken in the whole of, of what HD is, you mm-hmm. know, or right. who she was. Right. And the extent to which she was constantly playing around with new ways of writing. You know, we think of her as like, she wrote images, poems, and then she wrote epics. But there's so much in the middle of that that I think gets missed. And I think she was a good, I mean, you know, tribute to Freud is an excellent book. It's, you know, Ernest Jones, who was Freud's biography, loved it. He raved about it. It's a really fascinating way to think about doing a memoir of a famous, you know, famous, the famous psychoanalyst. So I, I think that might be something that I think it was reissued recently, but I think that might be something that people would be interested in. Hermione, I think one of the novels of her, this is a novel of her experience in, in Pennsylvania, in this kind of love triangle between a man and a woman, and and also sort of becoming an artist in that period. I think that book may may become a more important book. It was just re released as well with a new introduction by New Directions. So I think there are some gems that maybe get missed mm. and maybe in the future
0: won't. Well, a good first step for people will be to check out the book called HD, Critical Life. Lara Vetter, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, there we go. My thanks to Lara Vetter for joining me. Do check out her book on HD, which is worth a read. There's so much life there and so much poetry, and we were only able to scratch the surface. And my thanks to listener Troy for the wonderful email. These emails help to lift my spirits, people, even when life is on the attack, or if not on the attack, at least on the prowl, casing the Jack Wilson joint, waiting for its chance. We've got Tom Holland and the Roman Empire coming up soon. Speaking of books to go on your wish list for the holidays, man, is he ever a good read, a fantastic storyteller. It was fun talking to him, and our Yiddish translator will be here for a fascinating conversation about her works. I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.